Okay, we are in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're looking at chapter 3. <clears throat> Peter is going through various things, telling us we're chosen by God, we're peculiar, we're unusual, we're God's family, we inherit from God because we're part of His family. And uh, so, he says there's certain behavior that's expected of us. He talked about being a good citizen. We looked at that last week. And then we got, went on to chapter 3 and everybody got all excited because we started talking about husbands and wives. <laughs> and so uh, we will take it up there, chapter 3. We did uh, the first part, but we'll just go over it quickly so that we get both sides here. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Uh, King James is hard anyway. And uh, I think I'm going to say that sometimes Peter is not so good with words as Paul. Paul, of course, is a brilliant, brilliant man, and he can really write. And Peter's just a fisherman, so sometimes his words uh, don't flow so much. And we're going to run into that tonight, too, where it's sometimes a little hard. When you mix King James, and then you put his, his style of writing together, you got something a little difficult. But what he's saying here is that wives be subject or uh, submit. Wives have jobs. They want you to submit to your husband. Everybody loves that one. And he says the reason is uh, that if your husband doesn't believe, you're going to win him over with your lifestyle. It says he won by conversation, which is actually lifestyle. And so you have a certain behavior. And so as a wife, he said, you have a submissive behavior and you're easy to get along with. When they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, or that is, uh, you are uh, living a good life, you live a good life, good lifestyle, and you submit to your husband, and he talked about uh, being beautiful on the inside, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning, plaiting of hair, they used to spray things in their hair, it wasn't hairspray, it was gold dust and things like that, that they sprayed in their hair, imagine that, huh? Um, and uh, the plaiting of the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel, he says don't dress up the outside. Not that you shouldn't, but that's not where beauty is. Verse 4, let it be the hidden man of the heart, that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And so he says, you're going to be meek and have a quiet spirit. Meek and quiet. And he's going to add a little bit to that here. 
but he mentions first Sarah. For after this man in the old time, holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being a subjection to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as you do well, and are not afraid with any amazement, or that is, you don't have hysterical fears. Hysterical fear. All right. So you have self-control, quiet, not hysterical, so that you're easier to be get along with. And that's this is really not anything unusual. I know that we live in an age where, you know, when I say young couple, we're going to talk about who's in charge. They always. <laughs> get their uh, uh, get their uh, tentacles up to say no, we don't want to. They ain't going to do that. Well, what the Bible recommends here, and, and it's important to get the full side of this. Wives, you're going to submit, and sometimes there are decisions to be made between two people in a marriage, and. When there's an important decision to be made, it's not that you can't contribute, but if there is a, a, a odds, somebody that's at odds, then the, the Bible says, let the man make the decision, which then pushes all the blame onto him. And she's free. She doesn't have any blame. So I think that's a pretty good deal. You don't get blamed for what the man chooses. Uh, and... So the point of it is if there's a decision to be made and there seems to be an argument, then let the husband choose, let the husband decide, and the wife then has no responsibility. So uh, if you choose wrong, it's all your fault. What's precludes or would suggest to people that, look, if you're a man, you've got to start learning to be wise. And you spend your lifetime in search of wisdom. You try to get hold of that wisdom and use that wisdom so that when it does come a time to, for a decision to be made, you say, okay, uh, I trust my husband because he's wise. He's, he's been using his time to uh, gather wisdom, and he's more and more and more being wise. And if you need to get a start on that, then you start with Proverbs. You start reading the book of Proverbs. The book of wisdom. It will help to make you wise and give you a good point of view on how life works. You can read, of course, the Gospels are wonderful. You want to really get to the whole Bible, obviously, but uh, it's part of our job as men to be wise and to take the responsibility of gaining wisdom. And so when that happens, then this isn't any kind of a problem. It's not some kind of conflict where the wife says, I'm not doing what you tell me to do. No, it's because we're, we're uh, able to trust the wisdom. And that, so he's going to go into the men's side now, verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. And that's what we just said. 
exactly what we said. We are expected to be wise and to have knowledge and be able to uh, answer questions and, and understand how life works. And so he says, as a husband, you're, re- you're expected to be wise and to make wise decisions and to have knowledge. Or you, your, your job is to know things and get wisdom from God. Giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel... That one always gets everybody's uh, back up, too. They say, why are women, we, what's the song, right? I am woman, hear me roar, numbers too big to ignore. Remember that one? And I know too much to go back and pretend I'm still an embryo with a long, long way to go until I make my brother understand. <laughs> well, that was a while ago when I was young. All right, but, you know, women, let me hear you roar. It says here that they're a weaker vessel. It says, giving honor to the wife as a weaker vessel, he says. And so the husband over here has a responsibility of wisdom. He's supposed to be wise and live according to knowledge. And then he's to honor his wife as a weaker vessel and a word would be to protect it's our job to protect women to protect our wives to guard them keep watch over them and uh, and we do that we do that certainly do that if somebody goes after my wife I'm gonna I'm coming don't mess I'm not gonna put up with it you, you can't do that. And so uh, the, that's honoring your wife, protecting her. It's your job to be a protector. And then as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now, let's get this once and for all. It is in our society, women say we got... To be equals and so on and so forth, and uh, or sometimes they want to be more than equal. <laughs> uh, they want to, they don't want to be meek and quiet. Or they want to be in charge. Here's what he says: You actually are equal. Now that's right from the Bible. It's just men and women are equal. Galatians, if you turn back a few pages to the book of Galatians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Galatians chapter 3. We get a very unusual statement here about uh, Christianity and Peter's teaching them about Christianity and here's what he says uh, uh, Galatians 3 uh, 27 for as many of you has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ 
All right, you're a Christian. There is neither Jew nor Greek. And of course, in the Jewish mind, the Jews were God's chosen people and the Greeks were dogs. He said, no, 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 God doesn't look at you that way. There is neither bond nor free. And that was, of course, uh, servant and slavery in those days. The whole double standard in life. And he said, God doesn't look at that. And there is neither male nor female. Whoa! For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you are neither, in God's eyes, male or female. You say, wait a minute. Nowadays, they're asking kids because they're so dumb, they don't, they, they can't be any dumber. They're saying, kids, how do you identify? So Eli's going to college and they ask him, how do you want to be identified? He says, Sir Eli, he said. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, I like that. All right. Now, uh, you know, they can't make up their mind whether they're men or women. It's pretty clear, right? We were born the way we were born, and that came from God. But he says here, it's neither male nor female. What God looks at with us is personality. Personality. God looks at our personality. Every person in the world is different. There's nobody that's the same. There is every single one that was ever made, and you think about that, how many millions and millions of people have been made from the beginning of time till now. And no two were ever alike. You know, they say no snowflakes are ever alike, but I don't know who counted them all to see. All right? But people you can see, there's no... there's. Never two that are like. We watch people in a family. We look for family resemblances in their behavior. All right? And those things kind of come through sometime. But God looks at you and he doesn't say, well, there's a woman. What am I going to do with her? He, no, 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 no. God looks at you and says, there's a person that I created. That person is unique and special in every way. And if they get their act together and they serve the Lord, that's all I'm interested is in their personality. And so he wants our personalities to develop. God comes to us and invades our personality comes into our personality, invades it, purifies it, and makes it what he wants it to be. And he doesn't say, well, there's a, there's a lady, i got to do something different for her. No, 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 no. He wants every personality to develop to its full potential. You have full potential. Now, it's, it's my opinion that we won't get there until heaven. Well, then we'll be our, all of what we could be will be in heaven. Right? That would be our personalities, completely developed in the right way when we get to heaven. But there are people certainly who are more developed than others. There are people who have immersed themselves in serving the Lord, doing God's will, and they are developed more and more towards that. And we are expected, the Bible says, be you perfect, for I am perfect, God said. So I can't be perfect. No, but we're working that way. We're working towards it. And so when God looks at us 
And we'll see this when we get to heaven, I think. It's pretty clear. Jesus said nobody's going to be married in heaven. You go, well, wait a minute. Why not? I kind of like my wife. I'd like to be married to her there. Well, he said, it's not how it's going to work in heaven. You are going to come to your full potential of what you can be when you get there. And I'm going to tell you, it's my opinion, you don't just walk in and you're that. No. You've got to learn up there just as much as you've got to learn here. And there's plenty of people that are going to go to heaven and just say, I never thought it was going to be like this. I have a story that I tell. Um, There was a guy, a little lady named Hazel Howard. She sat in that third pew right there. She was the first person that told me I was going to have a church. (laughs) It wasn't me. It was her. I was in a howling blizzard, and she could hardly walk. And I was in the middle of the swamp down there, and my car died. I said, Hazel, just sit here. I'm going to run up to that house back there and call somebody. So I'm running through the blizzard and running back. I get in there. Are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then we talked a little, waiting for somebody to come. And she said, uh, uh, well, when you have your church, I'm going to go to it. I said, I'm not going to have a church. She said, well, when you do, I'll be there. Well, her husband never went to church. The only time in my recollection he came, when they had a 50th wedding anniversary, and we gave them a little party here. And Asa was her husband, and he came to that party. And this was a guy who I would call very tied to the earth. He uh, cut his grass perfectly, trimmed the bushes perfectly, had a fantastic garden, and that's where all his energy in life was put into those things. Never interested in church. And the only time he came was to that party. He came to this church, then when we gave him a little party, he came in, and he said, see my shoes? I said, yeah. He said, I got married in those shoes 50 years ago. That's the kind of guy he was. They looked brand new. Right? And he, he lived simply and plainly, and he didn't believe in God. Well, when he got sick, Hazel said to him, you better ask Jesus to forgive you if you're going to go to heaven. So he did. He did. And before he died, he prayed that Jesus would come into his heart, and then he died. Well, I went to pick up Hazel about a week later for church. She got in, and she said, well, he was here. Last night, I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he came, came last night. I said, well, explain, what do you mean? She said, well, I was sleeping, and I was sleeping on my side of the bed, and all of a sudden I felt the bed move, and I looked down, and he was sitting at the bottom of the bed. Now, this is not a lady, you know, if some people tell me that, I just go, yeah, okay, you know. But not this lady. Not this lady at all. She wasn't like that. She said he came and he was sitting at the bottom of the bed. And I woke up. He woke me up. And I asked him, I said, uh, well, how are you doing up there? And he said, I'm having a real hard time getting used to it. And then he disappeared. <laughs> 
and he was gone. And she told me there's just as plain as anything. And I thought to myself, you know, that makes perfect sense. Because here's a guy who never cared about anything but his garden and his bushes and his lawn and his lawnmower. And he, that was his, how he lived his life. And if he's gone to heaven, he got a lot to learn. He got tons to learn. And so he said, I'm having a real hard time getting used to it. And that makes sense to me. So uh, we're going to develop into who we ought to be as when we get to heaven and begin to learn. And we're going to realize that we are equals there. And so Jesus said, you won't be married in heaven. My wife always bugs me. So you just don't want to be married. I said, I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Jesus said, you won't be married in heaven. You're not given in marriage in heaven. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you're a full-blown individual of who you were meant to be, then you will have perfect relationships with everybody around you. Everybody. And so the more we develop into that person, the more we should be able to get along. And so back here, what he says here uh, is a real important thing. Now, verse 7 again, chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, wisdom, and learning. Give honor to the wife as a weaker vessel, protector, that's your job, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. You are heirs together. That is, you are co-heirs. You are going to join in the Lord's work together. And do the Lord's work together, he says, in the grace of life. So a husband and wife are a team that works together in the Lord's work. And they are equals on that team. God looks at it that way. And he's going to make us that way in heaven because it's personality that matters. It doesn't matter male or female, he says. It's personality that's what matters. And so uh, he says to the man, here's what I expect from you. I expect you to be considerate, to grow in wisdom, to answer questions, to honor her and protect her, and to do those things. And... Uh, then in the work of God and in the, in the work of life, it's better to say the work of life, uh, because God gives us children, we raise children, right? That's our job. God gives us families and we have control over families and we do what we can with families. And so uh, and God gives us churches and we work in churches. And all these things that God gives us as part of life, we serve him in our family, we serve him in our home, we serve him in our church, and all these things, you work together. And I would say to you that my wife is really good at that. She's good at working together with me. See, I was the one who said, gee, I think I'll go be a pastor. What's wrong with that? What kind of an idea was that? Well... It was a decision that I made, and I know right when I made it, because I was down the basement putting wood in my stove, 
And I was arguing with God, and I said, if you want me to be pastor, that means that every weekend, the rest of my life, I'm going to give them away. I'll never have a weekend all the rest of my life. And then God said, well, I said, okay, I'm in. And I threw a piece of wood in the fire, and that was it. Of course, there was a lot of discussion <laughs> leading up to that. But then, uh, see, I could say that for me. I couldn't say that for her. She had to say that for herself, which she did. Never questioned. She's been right in it up to her eyeballs, as you know. And you see her around here. She's always busy doing all kinds of things, particular teaching children. That's her specialty. And so we work together in the ministry. And what he says here, that your prayers be not hindered. That your prayers be not hindered. So this is a, a failure of a man to treat a woman, woman with honor and respect and protect her. I've seen plenty of guys who are nice at church, nice in public, nasty at home. Mean and nasty at home. It's not going to go. Never an encouraging word. Never an encouraging word. Never a thank you. Always tearing down. And what's going to happen is that God will not answer your prayers, he said. If you are at odds with each other, and it's the husband he's talking to here. If you are at odds with your wife and you don't treat her, she's supposed to be quiet, meek, and submissive. And you're supposed to be a protector, a wise man. And so you've got to encourage and lift up and work together in the Lord's work. He said, and there's many a blessing lost in that loophole. Understand what I'm saying. I'm saying that because a man can be miserable at home and hard to get along with at home uh, and never grateful or thankful for anything that comes along, never encouraging, and then you say, well, I'm going to pray that God helps me. He's not going to help you. He said he won't. He said your prayers will be hindered. God won't answer your prayers if you're miserable to get along with at home. There. That's it. There it is. And he said it, not me. <laughs> he said that. And so there can be a tremendous amount of blessing in a life where there could be harmony and love and, and joy there. Uh, it can just all slip away. And life can turn out to be pretty miserable if we're not. Now, it's been my habit. Uh, based on my opinion, uh, that it's not my thing <laughs> to talk about marriage. Now, I've been through the church, been around churches a long time. I've been teaching for 40 years. And um, I do not buy the marriage counseling stuff 
that Christians are out there putting out. You say, well, if it helps somebody, yeah, okay, all right. I mean, if anything is all right, if it helps somebody along the way, okay. But uh, I have never been one to say, all right, here's how your marriage is going to work if you do this, because that's what I do. You know, uh, I never buy that. Because we are personalities, every one of us unique. And so if we try to categorize everybody in this category, here's what husbands are supposed to do, and here's what wives are supposed to do. Uh, I look at marriages and I scratch my head and I can't say, how does that one work? (laughs) I scratch my head and I think, I I don't know how they get along, but they do. So shut up and leave them alone. Don't argue with them and don't say, well, this will be better. And uh, I had a guy here that was really pushing. He said, all your marriages are bad and I'm here to make them good. And I showed him the door because his marriage wasn't very good. But that's kind of what modern Christianity took as their banner. We're going to fix your marriage. Now, like I said, some people, I have heard one guy I heard was really good about it, but he was just plain logical and normal. So I think to myself, uh, if you are who you are, growing in God, and you should be able to get along with your wife, and you grow together in God, and uh, as long as you're doing that, then your prayers can be answered. Otherwise, uh, does it ever feel like God doesn't listen to you? Well, there may be a reason. Maybe a reason for it is your bad behavior uh, towards your wife. And that's what he's saying here to men. He's saying that to men. So it's an important thing. So I don't recommend people, here's what you do with your marriage to make it work. I, little tips like go to church. You need to go to church if you want your marriage to work. That helps. Those things help, and those are fine. But I'm not going to get in there and say, here's what you should do and you should do, because I don't think that God works that way. God says, here's a unique personality and another unique personality. I'm going to put those two together. And I said, when I first met my wife, I said, I think that's the one I'm going to (laughs) choose. And uh, so I did. And she said, well, you came looking for me. I said, that's right. (laughs) I did. (laughs) And I said, I'm taking you. And that was it. She had a boyfriend. Well, I got rid of him. That was no problem. We got rid of him early enough so that he didn't do any damage. (laughs) But uh, working together uh, has been just a wonderful thing. Now, I'm going to recommend... You know, this is what the Bible says about wives, and this is the hardest part of it that they submit and so forth. I'm going to tell you something that's very personal to me, and it has to do with being married, my mother and father. My mother and father didn't argue. I never heard them argue. Heard them discuss a little loud some days when they were discussing, and there was no flies on my mother. She was a pretty smart lady. Uh, and so, uh, but never argue. He never argue. I don't remember him fighting ever. Uh, but I want to talk about this submission stuff. 
My mother was a submissive wife. And so I used to think she needs to tell him he's wrong when I was young. And sometimes he was really wrong. In one case in particular, and I, I'm, I'm coming to a point, bear with me. One case in particular was there was a preacher and we went to a church and there was a preacher there. And I took in a record album. I told him I wanted to play it for him so he could tell me what he thought about it. And it was the song, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, one of the Beatles. My sweet Lord, I really want to know you. I really want to go with you. And I heard that for the first time. I had the album, of course. And so I played it for him. And he just kind of grunted and groaned and said he didn't really say anything. Then he went to my father and he said, your son is playing rock and roll in church and kids are dancing to it. I don't want kids dancing in church. Well, they weren't dancing, you know, you're doing this, you know. So my father came in, he said, you do that again, I'll smash every record you own and walked out. Now that wasn't the right thing to do. I was learning from George Harrison and Paul McCartney and John Lennon how to play that piano, which has become the most one of the most useful things I ever learned, all right? And so that was the wrong thing to do. So my mother, after I, I didn't say anything, but I was pretty angry. My mother waited till a little time went by, she came in my room, said, I'd like to hear some of your music. Okay. So I played a little uh, Paul McCartney song. Oh, that's a nice one. I said, well, how about this one? And we listened to music together for about an hour. Now, I don't think she loved it, but she was telling me, I don't necessarily agree in her own quiet way. And over the years, I saw that happen, where she went along with him when he made bad choices and didn't argue with him. And there was a couple times when he made some pretty bad choices. And, uh, you know, I was at odds. I didn't argue with him. But I was not going to agree with him, and she was just torn up. But she didn't say anything. She went along with him, and she submitted. At the end of that, my point is this. Her record, when she died, as a wife, was perfect. It was perfect. Why? Because she submitted when it was time to submit. She didn't have to agree, but she submitted. And of course, what does that do? As we said, it puts all the responsibility on the man, right? So at the end of her life, when she died, uh, her record was perfect. She had done everything right. And as a wife, uh, she gets 100 points. He had not always made good choices. But, you know, those are his responsibilities. 
things that he would have to go through. So uh, when I look back at it now, when I was young, I said, man, she ought to tell him. <laughs> but I, she didn't. And it was okay. It was the right thing. So uh, I recommend this. Uh, you say, well, that may be hard to do if you're a wife. Yeah, it might be. Sometimes it might be. Uh, and my, my mother was certainly an equal mentally with him. Uh, she could handle herself, but she did not rebel against his authority. So I, looking back, I see that as a, a very, very good thing, even though they weren't always right. His decisions weren't. So <clears throat> that's why I back off of marriage things because individual personalities are different and what makes two people get together and work together uh, good. Now if people aren't successful at that and they're arguing and fighting, which is of course this tells you not to, they're arguing and fighting and being miserable, then we got to try to go in and help. Carefully. <laughs> Carefully. Alright, so that's my comments on marriage that I think these are not hard things. These are reasonable things. And in the end, he's saying we're equal. We are individually equal. God doesn't look down and say, that's a female, I'm going to treat her this way. No, no, he looks right into our hearts and says, that's where I'm in after, your heart. And the rest of you will follow. So, uh, Peter, I think, had that right. As I told you, I think it was last week that uh, he was crucified upside down with his wife by his side. That's going all the way, isn't it? All the way to the end. He was crucified upside down, and, uh, and him and his wife uh, died together. So they really did what he said here. They were heirs together of the grace of life, and they lived together, and then they died together, and uh, their prayers were not hindered, that's for sure. Okay, so that's marriage in, from Peter, who was married. That makes a lot of difference. When Paul writes about marriage, and he, what he says isn't wrong, but this guy's lived it. He's had a wife, and he knows how to do what needs to be done. Now, verse 8. Finally, or in other words, he's going to press on to another section here. All right, so he's got into our uh, citizenship, the way we behave. He's talked about your behavior at work. Uh, servants be subject to your masters. Now he's talking about your behavior at home. You get right inside your home. And now he's going to talk about uh, our uh, behavior towards Christians, other Christians. Finally, verse 8, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous. All right? Be kind-hearted, uh, sympathetic towards people. 
Love people, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing you therefore are called that you should inherit a blessing. God wants to bless our lives. He said, and so when somebody argues and pushes and, and does something wrong towards you, he said, find out a way to bless them back. Because that's what God wants, to bless us. God wants to bless us. Don't don't forget that. He wants to bless us. So don't, if somebody says, I'll tell you, and you say, I'll tell you. No, that's not it. That's railing for railing. Or your bad comments back at the other person's bad comments. No, no, he says, "Let's, let's change that. Now, here's a great verse, verse 10. For he that will love life... And see good days. How is that day? You want that? I want that. I want to say, I love life. I want to see good days. What do we got to do? Let's see. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Shut your mouth. There it is. There it is. You love life. You want to enjoy life. And you want to... uh, (coughs) You want to... uh, See good days in your life, then you got to learn to shut your mouth. That's going to be really necessary to do. And if you can't control your mouth, then don't expect to enjoy life. Don't expect to enjoy life if you can't control your mouth. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. So uh, we want to have peace with people. We don't want to do the wrong things. We want to do the right things. We want to have peace with people and pursue that peace. That is, go after it. Find a way to make peace. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So there, there's a warning there. If you're going to be miserable, if you're going to let your mouth say whatever you feel like saying, if you're going to behave that way, I want you to realize that God is against your progress. He's not going to bless it. He's he's looking for people and he's listening to people who are willing to do the right thing. If you're going to be miserable, he's going to be against you. He's going to make your life twice as hard. Who is he who will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? So you do the right thing, you should get through life much easier but and if you suffer for righteousness sake happy are ye be not afraid of their terror neither be troubled if you do something for the Lord and it turns out that somebody goes after you for serving the Lord and doing what you do he says don't worry about it God sees he knows And here's what you got to live by. Here's a good verse, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You and I are supposed to be ready at any time to tell people what makes us who we are. So people come up to you, hey, I noticed you kept your cool there. Yeah, yeah. What'd you do that for? Well, I believe in Jesus. Why do you do that? Well, I 
he died for me, helped me, and forgave my sins, and so I owe him. I owe him something. And so I want to be able to answer people why I behave the way I do, and, and I need to have an answer ready for people. And, and people will notice, people will watch. If you've got your, if you're, keep your cool, guard your tongue. People say to me at work sometimes, you don't talk much. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because when I talk, I want them to listen. You talk all the time, nobody's going to listen. So you get a chance to say something every once in a while. It's because you're ready to answer. That's a really important thing. Know why you believe. Know why you want to serve God so that if any somebody all of a sudden comes up and asks you a question, I got an answer for sure. I can show it. Verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Keep your conscience clear. That's the best way to live. It is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than evil-doing. <laughs> that makes sense, you know. If you're doing something evil, then you get what you deserve. If you're doing something good and you get in trouble for that, then it's okay. God's watching. Here's why. For Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. All right, so... Christ went through that. He suffered for our sake, and he, he suffered to bring something good to us. Now we go into one of the most difficult passages here in this section of Peter. Much more difficult than anything we've seen so far. You could really get your head messed up here. You could really get confused uh, by reading this through and not grasping it. Because it is not simple. And as many different versions as I read it out of, it's not, nobody, nobody makes it simple, really simple. So I'm going to try to explain this to the best of my ability, what I think it means. And there's a lot of people who agree with what I'm about to say. Uh, there's people who have thought about this quite a lot. So, verse 18, Christ has also has once suffered for sins just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. So, Jesus, of course, died on a cross to bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but quickened by the Spirit. So, uh, he died on the cross. Jesus died. And it was his human body that died. He had a human body. That's what died. His spirit did not die. Right. He took on a human form so he could die because if he was only God, he could not die. Makes sense, right? God can't die. And so he took on a human form so he could come sacrifice himself in his human body and 
pay for our sins. So he says, he died. The body was laid in the tomb and he died. The spirit was alive. It did not die. So there he is on the cross. He says, it is finished. Into thy hands, Father, I commend my spirit. And he dies. They take him over a little ways. And they put him in the tomb. But his spirit was alive. Doing what? Well, here it tells us what he did. Verse 19. But, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. And this is where it gets hard. 20, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. All right. Now, something happened when he died. He said his spirit remained alive. And where did it go? Well... There's a place that's called Sheol, the Hebrew word, and uh, uh, it is, that word would mean the place of the dead, all right, would mean the place of the dead. Now, let's turn to Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16. It's a real important passage. Try to get in our minds what happened. Um, this particular passage is a story that Jesus tells, and it's not a parable, because in Jesus' parables, he never used first names, never gave names to anybody. He just said, oh, there was a man, there was a woman, there was a Samaritan, there was whoever. But this one he uses names. Right? And so it's about this rich man and a poor man. And uh, the poor man is named Lazarus. And he lays outside the rich man's gate and the dogs lick his sores and uh, he's eats crumbs, and that's how he lives. And then he dies. And then he says, the rich man who lived in the house also died. Verse 22 now of Luke 16. Came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So, it says that he went to hell, and this word Sheol is sometimes called hell. And he says that one of them, the poor man, went to Abraham's bosom, and the other man was in hell, and he could see a cross there. He could see him. All right. Verse 24, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. 
uh, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Besides all this, get this, between us and you is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. And so, uh, as Jesus tells the story, there's a, there's a huge wall, he calls a great gulf, there's a gap between the rich man over here who died and went to hell and the poor man who died and went to Abraham's bosom. And he said they could see each other, but they can't, you can't go one way or the other. Now, this was a holding place for the dead. And so when you died, you went there. Doesn't matter when you, who you were when you died, if you believed in God, you went to the good side. If you didn't, you went to the bad side. And that was the holding place that where people were held when they died. Jesus dies on the cross. His spirit, he says, went down and descended into hell or the place of the dead. Place of the dead. Right. So because his body died, his spirit comes down into this place. And it says, now back over in Peter, uh, verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This was a prison here. Particularly for the people on this side. They can't get out of there. There's a prison there. So when Jesus dies, his spirit comes into this place. He's going to for ever change it. Because he's the only one that could go in and come back out. He could go in and come back out. So he says he preached to the spirits who were disobedient. Verse 20, which sometimes were disobedient. All right. So that means there's people on this side, on the rich man's side, in a place they call hell, holding place of the dead. And Jesus comes in and it says he's going to preach to both of these sides. He preaches to the one side, up here where the people like the people in the flood. Now remember what it says in, in Noah's flood. Uh, they thought evil all the time continuously. And God said, I can't, I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm going to destroy the world. And so here's a very disobedient group of people. And God patiently waited for a hundred years while Noah built an ark. And Noah preached. He said, come on, you guys, you got to believe. Nah, we're not going to. All right. And so... Uh, he preaches to those people. And what does he say to them? He said, you're righteously judged. You've been judged as you deserved. You died in that flood because you were in full rebellion against God. And now you are being 
held here. And so uh, he said, you have been righteously judged. And he shut the door and he left them there. They're still there. They're still there. And when people now leave this world and they go to the place of the dead, that's still where they go. They are still there. All right. These people here, Abraham, Lazarus, David, uh, uh, Samuel, all the Old Testament saints are down here in this side. And he takes those people out. He says, come on, we're going up. We're going up, 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 and we're going to ascend. It says if he descended into hell, why did he do it? So he could ascend up to heaven. Now this is the real heaven where God's throne is. And so by his spirit, which was alive, he said, I will take you guys out and go up. And he leads them up to heaven. Psalm number 24, we have when they come to heaven. They arrived and they said, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the king of glory may come in. And they answered, who's the king of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty. It's the Lord, mighty in battle. So open them gates, we're coming in. And they come in. Right? So that's what his spirit did when he died. He stopped here and and pronounced these guys are righteously judged and left them there, took those who believed up to heaven. Because now they can go to heaven. Why? Because they've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Before it was just goats. You, if you died, you, had, uh, you, you went and get your sins forgiven, you took a goat. And they said, well, it's kind of like a credit slip. You got a credit slip. So you can hold on to your credit slips until we can cash them in for the real thing, Jesus' blood. Now you're free and they go up to heaven. All right. So we have these people preached to 20, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, there are few that his eight souls were saved by water. So he says, during that time when the whole world was in rebellion and he sent the flood and wiped out the whole population of the world, there were eight people saved on the ark. There was eight people, Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. Eight people on the ark and they're saved. They're saved, he says, by water. Now this is where it really gets confusing. 21. The like figure thereunto even baptism doth now also save us. And we go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it, hold it right there. We thought that baptism didn't save us. That's right. It doesn't. All right. He just said, baptism saves us. And this is where I think the writing is, you've got to really watch it. Because you could get yourself into trouble here if you say, well, if baptism saves me, i just got to make sure I get baptized. No, that's not what it means. Listen to what he says. Not putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... He says, those people were in the ark were saved from the water, but they were saved. He said, now, Jesus has come along now, and he says, baptism is kind of a picture 
of it, not because it washes us off on the outside. That's not why. It's because you have a clear conscience on the inside. And when we tell people you're going to be baptized, are you ready to be baptized? Well, if you are, it's because your conscience is clear with God. And uh, you're right with God, and you've got it figured out. You're right with God, so your conscience is clear. That's what he's talking about when it comes to resurrection. So, what is baptism? It's a symbol of what? Well, he says we're buried with Christ in baptism, and then we're raised with Christ in baptism. So, when we go under the water... You know, down under, we're buried. That is, we've got an old life that we used to live. We want to get rid of it. So, Jesus' body was buried in the grave. We're going to bury that old life under the water. It's a symbol. When you come up out of the water, you rise to new life. So baptism is a way of saying, I'm going to leave my old life behind. I want to have a clear conscience with God. So baptism doesn't save us, even though he mentions that. What he's saying is that by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or because Jesus rose up from the dead and has new life, he can give new life to you. As he gives you that new life, we're buried under Baptism, we bury the old life under the water, raise it up out of new water. And I think it's interesting that he uses water here as a term that he mentions. Because he mentions they were saved by water. And uh, uh, they really weren't. They were saved by the ark, right? They weren't saved by water. So why does he mention water? Well, if you were Jewish like he was... You spent your whole life with your hands in water. You washed your hands for every meal. You washed and washed and, and just washed all the time. And just think about this guy. What was he? He's a fisherman. Right? He spent his life on the water. And so what did he do? He walked on the water with Jesus. He watched Jesus calm the storm on the water. He dumps a net over the side of the boat and pulls up uh, so many fish he can't even drag them in because of Jesus. And he's had a lot of experiences with Jesus on the water. And I think it's in his mind, uh, man, I, I saw Jesus walk on the water and I saw him calm the storm and the winds of the wave and I saw him uh, fill our nets with fish out of the water. And, and I think of that when these people on the ark were saved uh, from that water. And then I think of baptism, we go under the water, leave our old life behind and come up with a new life. And that's what I think about. So. Uh, verse 22, who's gone into heaven is on the right hand of God, angel authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So, and he went down into the place of the dead, left these people in hell, still there, took these people out up to heaven where he ascended up and went into heaven. And he would come back for 40 days and then 
go back to heaven, ascending back up there. Uh, what happens with the people in this place called hell? In the end, uh, it says that hell was cast into the lake of fire. So there's one final judgment yet to come. And the people who rejected Jesus and are still stuck in this prison down here will be pulled out of there, judged again. You have been righteously judged. You rebelled against God. And now you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And so this, that's what happens to these people. They are still going here now, but when Jesus finishes time, and as, and as soon as Jesus comes and he says there's going to be an end of time now, then he'll have the great white throne where he sits in judgment on every human that ever lived. And these people are called out of this place, this holding place, and then cast down into the final judgment, the lake of fire. So he's gone up to heaven. He's on the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers being made subject unto him. Uh, uh, Paul says he's given him a name above every name, that all things in heaven and all things on earth and all things under the earth, that's every creature in heaven, everybody on earth, and everybody down there, all those people will have to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's in charge. He's the man. He's the one. Everybody's got to say it. That to the glory of God the Father. So uh, he's taken over. He's up there just waiting right, for the time when he'll come back. So it's a little bit of a tough passage, but I think we can grasp it and we go through it so it's not impossible to figure out. Next we go on with chapter 4 as we talk a little bit more about behavior. Behavior. Thank you.